welcome. Um, my name is Andrew Perrin, uh, and I'm the sociology professor and the director of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at UNC Chapel Hill. And I'm happy to welcome you today to um, the second in our series of IEH Zoom talks in which we're trying to bring um, important intellectuals and exciting ideas, uh, even the times when we can't engage with one another uh, literally in person. Um, we held our first of these Zoom talks last week as the Retford Lecture uh, featuring Ronald Judy of the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and we have two more scheduled in the coming weeks, uh, one featuring Deans Terry Rhodes and Elizabeth Engelhart on academic leadership during times of crisis, um, and one featuring David Keel on the IAH's role in uh, leadership development at Carolina over the long term beginning in 1990. Uh, and we're scheduling others as time goes on, so keep watching our social media feeds and our website um, for these. Uh, we will also be making recordings available on our website, um, so those, this will be available there as well. Um, before I introduce today's guest, let me just um, bring a little bit of Zoom etiquette, if you don't mind. Um, please leave your microphone muted um, until uh, we open it for questions and answers, at which point we can um, uh, bring that conversation more broadly. Um, and if you have any questions that you'd like me to deal with or um, questions you'd prefer to just uh, send by text rather than opening it to yourself, uh, please feel free to send that in the chat function and I will, uh, I will work on that as well. Um, I'm happy to introduce uh, my friend uh, and colleague uh, Eric Kleinenberg, um, professor of sociology at NYU and director of the Institute for Public Knowledge. Um, he joins us from New York. He's been doing a lot of writing very recently um, on the social both causes and effects of um, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, he's author of the widely acclaimed book, Heat Wave, about the 1995 Chicago heat wave, a social autopsy of death in Chicago. Um, and most recently author of um, the new book, Palaces for the People, um, on the, uh, the social properties, the social uh, value um, of of public spaces, but particularly of uh, public libraries. Um, I've asked Eric to spend maybe 15 or 20 minutes just talking about what he's doing now, his thoughts on the current condition, um, and then we will um, open things up for a conversation uh, among, uh, among those attending. Um, Eric, thank you for joining us. Oh, great, thank you, Andy. It's really uh, nice to be here with you. Um, you didn't tell everybody, but we were part of the same uh, graduate school cohort once upon a time. Um, and I uh, miss being in the seminar room with you, and I'll, I'll, I'll take this because it's the best I can get at the moment. Um, and I, it, it's, it's fun to see that, um, you know, we're, we're both kind of trying to do something at our universities that involve, you know, engaging civic life and uh, bring together communities of scholars um, uh, who are really interested in, the, in, in figuring out how what's possible to do with the university at this moment. Um, and so I'm especially honored to be invited to, to talk to you all right now. Um, you know, so uh, this situation we're in um, is really uh, confusing and stressful and uh, weird for all of us. And it's, it's also very scary. Uh, you know, I, uh, uh, I, like everyone else, is connect, I'm connected to people who are really vulnerable um, uh, because the um, identity of people who are vulnerable is uh, quite common. It's, you're old, you have an, uh, this category of the underlying health condition. It's a massive category. 
I'm very uncomfortable with the category and the way it's been invoked as if, you know, there are people who fail to take care of themselves. And so, you know, it's not, it's, it's kind of their fault if something goes wrong is the way it feels like that's being invoked. Um, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm in New York. And so we are right now maybe the most dangerous place to be. Uh, certainly in the United States, you know, up there with the most dangerous place to be on earth. And um, it's a funny moment because we know already that uh, class is shaping our experience with this uh, crisis in the way that class shapes our experience with just about everything else in the world. Um, maybe you've seen the maps that show uh, who's getting the virus and where they live in New York or in Chicago or Milwaukee or Detroit. Um, it's a story of it's a story of race and class. Um, but no matter what those patterns are, it's a moment where I think everyone feels vulnerable at some level um, because so many of us are tied to people who are really uh, susceptible. I have a, a, a mother-in-law who's uh, nearly 80, lives a few blocks from us in New York City. Um, and, you know, we think a lot about how to protect her. And I have parents in Chicago and other parents in California. And, uh, you know, you, you, you can't help but think about your lines of connection to other people um, and uh, how precarious we all feel at this time. And I'm saying all this because, um, you know, a few weeks ago when I got the first uh, message from the World Health Organization that, uh, we were going to face this pandemic. It was going to come to the United States. And the thing we needed to do to uh, stay alive and protect each other was to uh, start social distancing. Um, it sounded funny to me. Uh, it, it actually sounded wrong to me because it's not really my social proximity to friends or family or neighbors or you know, people who live in my city that puts them at risk. Uh, you know, the fact that I might be socially tied to, socially engaged with, socially supporting people around me uh, is not a, a, a hazard. Um, on the contrary, it, it seems to me like the, the thing we need to be doing at this moment is physically distancing ourselves from people. We, we, we need physical distancing um, be, for obvious reasons, that it's, it's physical proximity that, you know, causes the, the virus to spread from one person to another. Um, but as much as we need physical uh, distancing, we also need social solidarity. And, and, and by that, I mean, it, it's, it's a time that we recognize just how interdependent we are, uh, because that's the, the nature of this crisis. It's a, it's, a crisis it's a crisis that's generated through social interactions um, or, or, and physical interactions. Uh, and I think we need to recognize that Something about the message of social distancing tells us this, the strategy for getting through the situation is to get yourself home, you know, figure out who belongs to your household with you, close the door and turn your backs on the world and kind of wait for this to pass. And unfortunately, we know that um, there are already so many people who are, are sick and who have needs and who are vulnerable and who can't shelter in place because they don't have a home uh, or who can't shelter in place because they do what we now think of as essential work. Um, you know, Andy, I know you have a, a medical uh, care worker in your family, um, but a lot of people have people who are working as cashiers or as delivery person people, or uh, they're cleaning medical facilities, uh, or they're driving. And some, some people are doing that uh, out of goodwill. There, there are thousands of healthcare workers who are coming to New York right now 
even though we don't have things like surgical masks and, and surgical uh, gowns, let alone you know ventilators. Um, they're putting themselves in harm's way. And there are a lot of other people who are working because we don't have paid sick leave in this country and people's jobs aren't guaranteed and their income's not guaranteed. And they're going to work as a cashier because they want to be able to go to work as a cashier when this is over. Um, they didn't sign up for this in the same way. Um, but it strikes me that um, because so many people are uh, unable to simply shelter in place, uh, we can't end the vulnerability um, by socially distancing. In fact, uh, this seems to me like a moment uh, where what we really need to do is ex extend a hand. Um, it's not turning our backs, it's, it's figuring out who, who is it uh, who needs to have food delivered to their door, who needs to have medication delivered to their door. There are a lot of people who shouldn't go out right now and go shopping or who don't have access to a delivery system. Um, there are people who need to be doing work. That, that's my uh, puppy in the background, by the way. Since we all work under, if, if you're looking around your house, that's not your puppy, that's my puppy. <laughs> Soon you'll see your children, uh, you'll hear your children screaming as well. Um, so, uh, so, so it seems to me that um, uh, the message has to be solidarity, uh, that, that that's really the only way that, 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 that we get through it. And, and, and in some ways that's what we're doing. And it is, it is an amazing thing to see uh, all of the young people who are volunteering to teach older people uh, technological skills so that they can stay engaged and learn how to use the Zoom thing anyway. Uh, you know, it is amazing to see, uh, uh, you know, I have younger colleagues who are volunteering to uh, deliver food and medications door to door uh, to communities where you really do need to do that. And you probably know a lot of people who are uh, giving what they can to food pantries or to homeless shelters. Um, and we hear a lot of people calling for things like uh, universal basic income or uh, paid sick leave um, or you know, better education. I mean, there's, there's a way of uh, promoting social solidarity that involves scaling up to something political and not just knocking on the doors of people around you. And I think it's a moment where a lot of people are realizing that there's a lot that they can do. The thing that, that I've been thinking about a lot, and Andy, I wanted to talk about this you know, in, in your uh, seminar, because I know this is a thing that, that you've spent a lot of time doing work on as well, is that um, we have already started uh, to kind of process what will be you know, maybe the largest federal relief effort of our lifetimes. We'll, we've spent trillions of dollars, we will spend trillions more. Uh, there are millions of people who've lost their jobs already. There, there, there will likely be tens of millions of people just in this country. Um, we have seen that the fantasy that the United States has the best healthcare system in the world is probably going to be hard to sustain, um, although I suspect we'll hear it again. Uh, and um, we can see how uh, you know, having things like no paid sick leave uh, make all of us vulnerable. Um, and so, so here we are now starting this process in which uh, the president and Congress are passing multi-trillion dollar uh, legislative bills uh, that will provide disaster relief and economic stimulus. Um, but on what terms, uh, what standards, under whose oversight, um, you know, all of that is an open question and it changes day by day as we learned yesterday when the president fired the uh, uh, administrator who was supposed to evaluate the spending decisions. And, you know, under ordinary times, when you have a situation in which 
the government is going to spend trillions of dollars on a massive bailout or stimulus uh, that will potentially shape the economy and society for decades to come. Uh, there's something like a democratic process that happens. You know, people have uh, access to you know the public sphere. Uh, you know, you can rally in the mall in Washington D.C. You can go to the state house. You can assemble on the campus. You have a vehicle for expressing your democratic wish. It's not like it works perfectly. We know that there's all kinds of problems with our democratic process already. Um, and in the bailout of the economy in 2008, for instance, it was not clear that uh, American citizens had an easy way to try to shape the decision-making process, uh, even you know, um, uh, uh, under those conditions. But now we're in this funny moment where there effectively is no public sphere. You know, instead of a public sphere, we have, uh, you know, we have Zoom meetings like this one. You know, we have Facebook, we have Twitter, um, and it's not nothing. I mean, it, you know, it is something, uh, but it's not what we're used to. And it's not at all clear to me that we have a mechanism for expressing our preferences or for mobilizing as a citizenry uh, or for finding representatives who will speak for us. I mean, there's this kind of just bizarre and puzzling process through which we're, you know, we, I guess as of moments ago, Bernie Sanders is out of the campaign and there is a Democratic uh, uh, candidate for president, it seems to me at the moment. Um, but look at this election in Wisconsin yesterday. I mean, what, what we're experiencing now is not democracy uh, as, as it's supposed to, to work. And it feels to me like we are in a truly consequential moment where we're going to make a, a, you know, massive decisions, again, decisions that could potentially involve trillions of dollars and that could structure our uh, labor market, our cities, our economy uh, for decades to come. And I don't know how that's going to happen and, and how democracy will work in it. So one thing I would love to talk with you today about is, um, is that, you know, what comes next? And I guess the other thing that I would really like to discuss with you and hear your thoughts on is, this whole question of solidarity that I've been I've been raising, you know, what 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 does it mean uh, for us to try to build social solidarity at a moment like this? So I, I really do believe that the you know events can be switching points uh, for history, um, that 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 we will be something different on the other side of this, um, and that we we really are about to embark on a period of social and political change like nothing else that we've experienced, um, and in that period being able to build something that feels like social solidarity, you know, by, by which I mean this kind of rec basic recognition that we are interdependent and that if we invest in uh, you know, public goods and common interests that we have some capacity to kind of do better collectively than if we act as if we are on our own uh, and we're better than everyone else uh, and, that, and that we're just fine and we can do what we want. Uh, uh, it seems to me like building solidarity uh, has, has never been more urgent. Um, but, but so then what I've been thinking about is, you know, what, what does that mean in practice? Um, can, you know, so, so one of the things about this event is that it does show the extent to which our fates are linked to the people around us. I mean, I can't, I can't think of a time when it was so clear to me that what my neighbor does will shape my experiences and, uh, well-being, uh, directly. So, you know, again, if my neighbor works at a job where uh, she will be fired if she doesn't show up for work and her kid wakes up in the morning very sick and she knows that if she doesn't send her kid to school, then she's got to stay home with him. 
So he's just gonna go. And then he goes to school because she's gotta keep her job. And my kid gets sick and then I get sick. I mean, it, things spiral that way, right? And it's the same, you know, there was a report a few years ago about the number of people in the food industry in the United States who, um, who show up to work when they're sick, you know, even with the virus, because they have very low levels of job security. And you know, you're gonna, you're gonna keep on flipping burgers uh, no matter what, and you're gonna pass your sickness on to your, employee, your fellow employees, your colleagues, and also to your customers. So it, at, at that level, um, we can see our connections to each other. And similarly, you know, if, if, if I have an education system that fails so many people so badly that they can't distinguish uh, basic scientific information between say, you know, uh, what's a flu and what's a, a, an unusual coronavirus that could kill people at a much higher rate. And so therefore when uh, they hear ambiguous messaging on TV, they think, you know, I should just go out and act like I normally do because that's what's best for, for everyone. Um, that's, that's a, I guess at some level of a failure of personal responsibility, but it's also a failure of collective responsibility because we've built an education system that doesn't teach enough science and critical thinking. And that's, and that's on us, and that's about our investment in these kinds of institutions. So here we are in this moment where we can see the fact of our interdependence uh, in a way that we never have been able to before. We see how much our fates are linked to each other. And you know, does that, does that translate into some interest in investing in the fate of the group? Yeah. Does it, does it, could, how could it translate into something like that? So, you know, when, when sociologists, when they think about solidarity, think about these, you know, webs of interdependence. It's, of course, Durkheim's famous idea about organic solidarity coming from a division of labor, right? That, that it's when, when people are doing different kinds of things in a complex modern society that they can recognize their, their ties. Um, we, we are integrated in a different way uh, in the modern world. And, of course, now, we live in a very global world, and so our interconnections are not just to our neighbor, um, but, but also to people you know, in Wuhan, China, um, and in Milan, Italy, uh, and, and, and in Jalisco, Mexico. And so that, that, that really changes the, the nature of you know, what, what it means to think about solidarity. So, and this is another thing I've been struggling with. You know, conventionally, when, you know, when Durkheim was writing, there was kind of the solidarity of the religious group. There was the solidarity of the professional group. You know, Durkheim cared a lot about professional ethics and it was a corporatist uh, uh, kind of concept. So even the history of labor unions in the United States, the kind of where, where solidarity has been a big idea, has often been structured in a, in a corporate kind of way. It's that the truck drivers are part of a union and maybe they're national or maybe they're international, but, but we, we, we're organized in a very particular way. So what does it mean to think about solidarity when the problems are things like the coronavirus pandemic on a global scale, or you know, when this is over uh, climate change? Can, 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 we, can we produce a kind of global, so the kind of global solidarity that we need to make sacrifices in the United States for the sake of uh, you know, people who might be flooded out of their homes in the Marshall Islands? And, and, and I don't have answers for those things, but, but it's, what's on my mind right now is um, how do we make the case, um, how, 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 how might we think about um, the meaning of solidarity at a moment like this? And should we want to uh, begin a project of really trying to build it? Um, do we even know what that would look like? So I think I'm gonna stop there. Great. 
Eric, thank you for those provocative thoughts. Um, let me open it um, to the audience. Um, please feel free to, to jump in, uh, to raise a hand or to uh, enter something in the chat. And, and could we make sure that people introduce themselves when they do? Yes. Thank you. And to be clear, like I, I, I'd be happy just to hear thoughts and ideas. It, it, it needn't be addressed as a question to me. So we just brainstorm together. Well, Eric, I'll start um, uh, with, a, with a question that came to mind as I saw some of the more recent stuff you've been writing. Um, and much of your work has dealt with um, people being alone, right? That the, that the solitude of death in Chicago was an important piece of heat wave and you wrote a book called Going Solo. And so, so much of your work has been about the kind of condition of aloneness. Yeah, my, my wife calls that those my, my fantasy books. Yeah, <laughs> um, as being a problem, right? As being a, a weakness. Um, well, not, not really going, I mean, I don't think going so, I think Heat Wave was a book about dying alone. Um, and it was really about isolation. But for, you know, the, for me, the surprising thing about the, the study of people living alone, the reason it was going, called Going Solo in the end and not Alone in America, which was the tentative title, is that I, what I discovered from that project is that you know, living alone was actually something that was far more social than I understood. It was far more common in the affluent world than I understood. Mm -hmm. In fact, like the, it's most common in Scandinavian countries that have both wealth from the market and also these generous welfare states because a lot of it is about supporting people to make the choices they want to make. So, so in that sense, um, you know, and, I, and I've come in for some critic, like Jill Lepore wrote this article in the New Yorker kind of taking some shots at me last week um, for celebrating living alone, which is also not what I intended to do. Um, but I, I guess I feel like in, being alone is, is not necessarily isolating and destructive. Um, it has become totally isolating in the, at this moment um, mm -hmm. because physical distancing is necessary. And so there are all these people who live alone and, are, and quite socially with a really decent support during ordinary times who have suddenly found themselves deeply on their own and deeply isolated. And I think it's been very trying, but anyway. Mm -hmm. You anticipated the rest of the question. Yeah, I mean, yes. I, I just, you know, I was interested in the fact that what we're first and foremost told is that physical aloneness is the right, uh, you know, is the public minded option, um, you know, in, in this situation. Um, well, yeah, I, I'm really worried about the, you know, I've talked about it as social, social pain. Um, I did an interview with Ezra Klein a few days ago and his, you know, his concept is that we're entering into a social recession uh, you know, we're talking a lot about the economic recession, um, maybe depression soon, but there's a, a social recession as well. And I think that's probably right. Uh, I, I mean, I think right now we're kind of figuring out how to survive and get, you know, keep the death rate down. Um, but there's massive mental health implications of this situation. Uh, I just think, you know, all, all kinds of stress and anxiety and depression and loneliness um, that this is kicking up. I mean, this is not a great week for sleep. Uh, a great time for sleep. Uh, you know, it's not a great time for um, for doing a lot of the things that we ordinarily do to, you know, to kind of relieve our, our anxieties and our depression. Um, you know, of course, most importantly, being with each other. Um, there's something about, you know, gathering together in physical places that's really special um, and that, that brings out, some, you know, the best in us. And of course, that's that, that's impossible at a moment like this. And so, you know, even by the way, the um, 
I, I don't know if you've been reading the, the coverage of, you know, kind of what happens if someone in your family dies. You know, how do you grieve? Um, there's no funerals. Uh, I, have a, I have a really dear friend who's 58 year old cousin died last week uh, of coronavirus and you know, no one could go visit them. Uh, there was no, he's Irish, there's no wake. Um, the, when they did the burial, only people who lived in her home were allowed to go. Uh, you know, people came in in uh, uh, kind of NASA suits, uh, you know, and removed the body and, and wouldn't let the family go anywhere near them. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a physically alienating time that the way that we support each other and love each other uh, is different. If you're in a home and someone in your household gets sick, you're supposed to lock them in a room and not go near them for two weeks, and even if that's your child or your elderly parent, I mean, or your spouse, it's a very hard thing to do. And so, um, you know, it, I, I think this, this event is introducing uh, all kinds of really deep physical and social challenges for us um, that, are, that I think we're, we're, we're struggling with in part because it, in, a, in a way we've been so successful at uh, staving off things like this. Mm -hmm. um, it, we, we've taken for granted a level of health and well-being um, that we clearly can't take for granted anymore. And, 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 and by the way, I mean, many people have pointed out, it's not just the coronavirus who, that, that, that does this. I mean, the whole kind of uh, case and Deacon uh, deaths of despair uh, work, the, the book just came out a few weeks ago, suggests that there's a kind of social pain um, and alienation that, that, that has been killing people for many years now in the United States. So, um, but, but this is, this is uh, making it more widespread and more worrisome than ever. Yeah. Um, we have a question that's come through on the chat. Um, could I ask whether data are being collected now that might reproduce or improve on the sort of work that you did on the Chicago heat wave study? We, you know, it's very early now and we have horrible data on just about everything, including um, how many people are dying, um, probably, I don't know if you, if you read Heat Wave, you know, the very beginning of the book is this whole section about the difference between, you know, a, an official heat-related death, which is, you know, in a, a hospital and has a medical signature or a police investigation and a, and a diagnosis, and then the excess death, which is how many people above the norm uh, wound up dying during that period. And if you've been following this, you know that's already an issue in New York. I mean, there are hundreds of people uh, in addition to the normal number of people who, who die every day who are being discovered dead at home, literally hundreds more every day. And so it's already pretty clear that the, that just the, the basic data we have on mortality is, is off. And uh, it's very hard to get uh, data on the prevalence or the incidence of these cases because we don't have testing. And, um, you know, what we do have is, uh, you know, kind of some data about uh, hospitalizations and, um, and, and, and death, and it's very partial. So I don't think we have anything like what I did in Chicago yet. I hope we'll be able to do that. Uh, the, you know, there have been a lot of publications that profile, you know, the neighborhoods in New York that have the highest uh, mortality rates or the case, highest case numbers right now. You've probably all seen these, these data on uh, race and vulnerability in the Midwest. Detroit, Milwaukee, Chicago, it looks very bad. It looks very much like African-Americans are more likely to get the virus and then also significantly more likely to die uh, if they do get it. 
um, which you know should not be a surprise since you know everyday inequalities, including access to healthcare, are going to determine who has uh, the capacity to get through this and how sick someone is before the virus hits, which is which is going to shape the outcome. Back to the issue of underlying conditions. So. Um, I have a team at NYU that we're already starting to assemble to do some research on this. Um, we did a lot of uh, terrific work uh, after Sandy in New York to think about you know, how, how that event affected New York and how to think about the future. And I, I'd like to do something similar uh, when this is over, but it's, you know, it's a very hard moment because you know, most of the hours of the day, I'm trying to think of like how to engage my kids who have remote schooling for you know, two hours and 15 minutes and that's all. And you know, where we're we gonna get food and how to not get the virus. And then the rest of the time, I'm trying to think about, you know, what are the good science questions that we could be asking? Um, but I think life is like that for everybody right now. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, let me just say, if you're interested in this, um, please let me know because there are, you know, there are all kinds of possibilities for collaboration. I have a PhD student who reached out to me this morning because she wants to do a project on neighborhoods and social networks. She's trying to figure out how to do Zoom interviews with people in different neighborhoods in New York. How do you sample, right? How do you find the population that you're gonna study for a thing like that? It's really tricky. Um, uh, what are the variables that we wanna look at? Um, so early evidence is that neighborhoods that have a lot of people who work in uh, working class jobs have a higher incidence because people are still out there in the world and in public, but we don't really have great data on the concentration of working class or essential jobs by neighborhood. So I don't, I don't know how to, how to do it yet. And so we're trying to brainstorm and I, I hope that people who, organizations that fund this research will help, help us build networks at a time like this. Cool. Um, a comment that came on the chat, um, a person writes, the other side of the loneliness and despair is the way in which some people are slowing down, breathing, focusing, able to live a less crazy life. Um, I can't say I've experienced that myself, but I, I'm aware that it's going on out there. So yeah. that may be part of the mental health story too. And I might actually add also in a, in a weird kind of way, this is me now, not the person from the chat. Um, in a weird kind of way, the failure of some of the medical systems have produced a kind of, um, I don't know, sort of backfill solidarity where, you know, folks are, um, making our, our maker spaces at Carolina have built personal protective trip equipment for healthcare workers in the UNC hospitals because there weren't enough of them otherwise. And so the, the failures of these institutions in a kind of backhanded way provide a way for people to express solidarity um, in, a, in a, yeah. an odd kind of uh, way as well. No, I think that's right. I mean, we are, um, you know, uh, as other movements have in other times, I think there are a lot of people who are bonding together, uh, you know, in opposition to the state uh, to um, help each other get through what feels, uh, you know, like a dangerous uh, political movement. Um, uh, you know, we are, you know, helping students, we're helping neighbors. You know, there's a lot of solidarity that comes from dealing with failure. Like there's the sense that we've been abandoned. I mean, you, you might not feel that quite as much in North Carolina as we do in New York, given the uh, desperation of health providers and all the sick people here, but you might feel it as members of the University of North Carolina that you know you've been working in a state that has, in some ways, abandoned or attacked the institution, and so there's probably a solidarity that emerges on campus from you know trying to cope with that that you know that kind of crisis. So that you know that that makes some sense to me. Um, as for the 
you know, the kind of sweetness potentially of this moment. I mean, it's indisputable that the air has never been this clean. Uh, you know, there's very blue skies. Um, and there might actually be some health benefits from that. I mean, I think a lot of people who suffer from, uh, you know, uh, problems related to pollution, uh, respiratory, you know, conditions, if they don't get this, if they don't get the virus, they're, they're going to do better. Um, uh, you know, uh, my kids were scheduled to be in school, very busy, you know, racing around the city. I was supposed to be traveling every week in the last, you know, eight weeks. My wife is going to be traveling a lot and now we're all home together. And we have this kind of special time that we would never expect to get with each other. And, uh, you know, if you could just block out the sense of dread uh, uh, and, and terror, um, you know, there's something lovely about that time. And there are clearly people who are meditating and, uh, you know, finding some source of spiritual salvation. And, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, I, th I think during horrible moments, there's always, um, you know, something to uh, be gained personally, emotionally, spiritually. You know, we, we go deep inside of ourselves. And so, um, and, and maybe we spend time with each other in a different way. So it's not, it's not just a story of, um, uh, of loss, um, but, but it's hard not to think about the dangers and the losses. Sure. Uh, Caroline Williamson uh, has a, a hand raised. Caroline, go ahead. Hi, um, I live in New York most of the time myself, and um, I uh, go to church with Karen Holmberg from NYU. Oh, she yeah, said my to tell Karen. you how I. <laughs> <That's really nice. laughs> um, and um, I also do a little bit of funding with um, Linda LaSalle Bryant at the Silver School of Social Work. Okay. Um, and so they have a lot of students that are interns doing their internship now, probably with time on their hands. Um, and working with a lot of um, underserved people, that might be a resource. I'm happy to put you in touch with her of people that might be able to help you with your groundwork. Thank you, Thank you very much. Um, but my question is more after you, um, you know, af the research after the fire, after whatever, how do you, um, how do you, you know, we're so, you know, like, Karen's in my church, we're online every day, three or four times a day with things you can participate in. But how, so how do you go back or how to, what does life look like after the, you know, Sandy or after the fire for these people? I mean, I don't know if you saw de Blasio today was on television for an hour and a half talking about how he knows people feel bad. But um, I mean, you know, so how do you re-engage or how do you follow up with the people afterwards to say, you know, what do you need? What do you do? I, I mean, I certainly don't think there's a playbook for how to do that. And, you know, I know in my research, I have techniques that I use to try to um, get salient data. And, you know, it, it, if, as a re, if you're asking as a researcher, it's really tricky. I mean, when I did my book about the heat wave in Chicago, for instance, I went to neighborhoods and started asking people what had happened on their blocks, you know, who died and where they died. And, it turned out that people didn't know what was going on in their blocks. And lots of people said, you know, nothing happened here. We didn't have any problems here. Everything was fine. And they'd said that even though they were living next door to someone who, who died. And even people who lived in the buildings where people died didn't know that people had died. And the, so it was, that was not a reliable source of, energy, of uh, right. data for me. And so I needed a different kind of data collection. So when I, when I spoke to my graduate student this morning about, um, her project on social networks and you know she said well it seems like in some neighborhoods uh there's there's a lot more people out in public space there's like more uh, interaction physical interaction and than others 
And I said, well, you know, how are you going to try to assess that? Um, if you do interviews, you know, you, you may get reliable information. You might not. Um, it's, it's very hard to capture that. It's not, I, I actually don't think as social scientists, we can just trust people's self-reports about things like that. They tend to, they tend to be pretty unreliable. And so that's tricky. If you're asking not in terms of social research, but in terms of kind of how do we get back to regular life? Um, that's also a tricky question. I mean, uh, I think people's overriding experience with this is um, physical life in person is better than life on the screen. I don't know a lot of people who are saying like, oh, when this is over, I can't wait to not go into work anymore and I can have more Zoom meetings, you know? Um, I think there was some, I got one round of applause. Thank you, Susan Bickford. I mean, I think like <laughs> people are, people are hungry for social life, you know? Like I've never missed my annoying colleagues so much. Uh, you know, we, we like, I, I don't mind waiting in line for brunch. Uh, there's just like a lot of things that I would, that I'm looking forward to in life again. But I also know that I, I, it's going to be very hard for me to get back in the subway. You know, when it's time to get back in the subway, it's going to feel really weird to go to a very crowded, uh, you know, bar in New York city or to a music venue. Um, and I'm not looking forward to doing that anytime soon. Um, and so there's going to be an adjustment period where we have to get used to touching again. And I, you know, I, I watch, I look around the world and I see that a lot of other societies are doing it. Um, you know, but, and maybe we'll now start to learn some better public health practices. Maybe we'll wash our hands a little bit more. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, maybe, maybe this is a, a path towards public health, but I do think, so, so I guess my long-term prognosis is that we get back to normal and we, we maybe even change the world. But my short-term prognosis is going to be very, very hard to feel okay. I could uh, jump in. Uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to to meet you, sort of this yeah. way. Uh, are you are you are you in Afghanistan now, or is that what? what's... what's... <laughs> This uh, Syria, the desert of uh, Syria. I was teaching about Syria and thought I'd, throw, I'd try to throw up relevant backgrounds. Much more interesting than the wall of my home. I like it. I'm <laughs> um, I, I, I sort of curious about the ways in which not only are we being isolated. I'm sorry I had to jump out and take a call for a few minutes. So I, maybe you already discussed this, but the ways in which we're you know, physically isolated. And I, I take your point about physical distance as opposed to social distance. And I remember seeing the first time I saw that was an email from Andy a couple of weeks ago, uh, correcting people about uh, uh, the terminology. I also wonder the way in which so much of this crisis is pushing public health into an individualized direction. Like it becomes our responsibility to make our own masks, to take our, care of our own safety, to do all of these things. And whether that's a zero sum thing, between the public infrastructural commitments, uh, investments, and so on. Like it becomes your problem and your fault if you didn't take care of yourself as opposed to our collective problem and our collective fault. Uh, or whether we can blame every, there's enough blame to go around that we can blame everybody at the individual and collective level at the yeah. same time. You know, I, I guess my, my feeling about this, and I think it's an open question, these are matters of interpretation, and part of the reason I've been writing so much and doing so many conversations like this is because it feels to me like we're going to kind of, we're going to have to frame and define this experience, and that the stakes are pretty high, because we're going to go away from this with certain lessons and ideas about what, what happened. Um, like, we know, for instance, that the president will soon tell us that 
you know, millions of Americans could have died. And the only reason that hundreds of thousands of Americans died is because of, you know, his brilliance as a political leader and how seriously he took this and the, you know, the incredible way in which he managed, um, you know, to deal with bad information that came from the World Health Organization. And, and so, you know, it feels to me like there's a lot that's up for grabs in this interpretive battle. Um, and like we see how culture matters for politics right now if we didn't before. And so, I, you know, I guess on this individualism and public health thing, it, it, it feels to me like the idea that, you know, you're responsible for producing your own mask. Um, that's the kind of thing we, we, we feel if we live in a failed state. And that, um, I, and I'm, I do think that a lot of, of people's expectations are, are um, being shaken and, and, and people will come out of this experience with some different political views than they had before. Um, I do think a lot of people who were persuaded that America's got the best health system in the world will not think that at the end of this, you know, when, they, when, the, when the evidence is in and when they go back to their experience about how hard it was to get, you know, basic things, you know, in, including masks. And so, you know, I, maybe this is a fantasy, but I also think it's, it's kind of analytically where I am. It, you know, it seems to me like uh, people feel let down um, by political leaders. And there's a sense that we uh, did not we did not do this adequately, and that it is it is wrong and unfair to say to people, uh, you know, this is not a real thing you need to be worried about. This is not a big deal. Uh, go to work, uh, act like you normally can, like you normally do, uh, and then the next day, oh, uh, actually everyone needs to have a mask that you can't get. And you really shouldn't go out into public without that mask that you can't get. Um, that's just, it, it, I, I, think that's a, I think that's not the kind of approach you get from a, a government whose ideas inspire faith. So, you know, I, I guess I think that a lot of Americans now, including people who, uh, you know, don't have kind of strong ideological commitment to progressive politics or, Demo or, or the Democratic Party even, feel um, that they've been placed in an impossible situation. And, and they might even feel that the needs that they have overwhelm the capacity of local organizations. So I've been thinking a lot about this book that Elizabeth Cohen wrote years ago called Making a New Deal. And I don't know if you know that book, but it's a book about um, these communities in Chicago that were uh, organized around mutual assistance societies and very local level um, you know, mutual aid programs um, with some support from local government in the pre-depression period. And what they began to experience uh, in mass is that their capacity uh, was just too weak to deal with the, the massive problems of unemployment um, and of uh, the lack of food um, and diminished resources. And the, the reason we scaled up from kind of individual responsibility and community responsibility and ethnic group responsibility to we need a federal program is because people realize that the challenge was too big. And so uh, I think something like that might happen here. Um, it, it could easily not happen. You know, it could easily not happen. We could just go back to, it could be a blip. We could be persuaded that, you know, our president's genius uh, solved it. Very few people will have the capacity to vote in November potentially. Thing, you know, 45, you know, is 40, you know, has four more years and we act as if, you know, he, he did it all right. That's, that's a totally plausible scenario. And um, it would not surprise me, but it does strike me that um, 
the, there are other scenarios that are also very plausible. And it feels to me like it's one of these moments where everything is up for grabs. Does that make sense, Charles? Yeah, but I, uh, I see that Susan's written a, a comment here, which is uh, sort of gets at part of what I was wondering is whether you know, the partisan identity, you know, will basically determine how people interpret what we're experiencing and the state response. Uh, and uh, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, we're all curious to see how this plays out. I also wonder, if, because I study uh, the Middle East primarily where, um, you know, the responses have been all over the place uh, on the part yeah. of different governments and the disaster, the level of disaster is potentially even greater, um, although slower to start yeah. in some countries. Um, and it, it, it's not clear that uh, anybody's minds is, you know, are going to be changed um, about anything, you know, on a broad scale that, it, you know, I, I, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I totally get it. And I guess one of the questions is, you know, um, how many, uh, how many older Republicans have to die in Florida before people think, you know, we've been, we've really been failed. Um, you know, you probably saw these lines of people waiting for, uh, unemployment checks in Florida right now because you, you can only file your claim in person. The online system is broken. There's a lot of anger at Rick Scott about that. Um, a lot of people voted for Donald Trump in Michigan four years ago. And when Michigan needed uh, federal assistance, the president attacked the governor and wouldn't deliver anything. I guess today he announced he was sending more ventilators because of the senator, the Republican senator from Michigan. And um, I'm guessing there are a lot of people in Michigan who are angry at that, about that. And um, it's, there's no doubt that there's 25 to 30% of the population who uh, you know, will never change their mind. And you know, th there's nothing that can be done. But I actually think there's a good number of people who um, you know, have a, a fairly open mind about this situation. And they will be judging what happens. And so now we're in this moment where there still is uncertainty. I think. You know, very few parts of the country have had the experience that we've had in New York. So it's hard, it's hard for me because we, mm -hmm. we've lived inside of this so intensely the last few weeks. It's kind of hard to believe that there are places that are kind of going on business as usual, like the state of Tennessee, uh, where they don't have stay in place orders or, you know, Iowa or Idaho. I mean, it's just, you know, that's another world as far as I can tell right now. Mm -hmm. um, but as this um, crisis moves from state to state and city to city, uh, and expresses itself, you know, through us and causes um, joblessness and death um, and massive anxiety. I, I think people will be moved. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. Let's um, just bring in Susan Bickford's comment, uh, which is referenced, but um, Susan writes, the interpretive battle, is there any reason to believe that the grip of partisan identity will loosen in terms of how people frame this event? Um, and again, I, I can't resist sort of commenting on that Please. too and throwing it in here, but you, you mentioned sort of going back to normal and you mentioned um, the kind of uh, Agora area or the public sphere. The, you know, by, by really any measure, the public sphere was deeply broken before uh, the coronavirus hit. And I suppose, a, you know, a, um, a, a 
a positive moment might be to suggest that it actually might get fixed in some sense in the in the wake of the virus. But um, going back to normal implies going back to a you know a deeply bifurcated um, battle over um, the sort of nature of truth and the partisan identity of um, uh, of sort of moral and um, epistemological judgment. Um, yeah. We, so we were in big trouble before this all started. Um, sure. uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I, to amplify Susan's comment, you know, um, it, it strikes me as more likely that that, that the toxicity in the public sphere um, is, you know, is, is probably not going to be solved. I, I, I don't expect the public sphere to get, you know, resolved. Um, you know, I, I don't. Um, I, I don't think that means that people will not um, change their minds. I don't think that means that people are fixed on a certain set of political preferences and will vote in a certain way. Um, you know, I, I, like nothing short of uh, a transformation of leadership and ownership at Fox News, um, you know, will change that operation. But we reached a point where, you know, if Fox News closed tomorrow, another uh, actor would just step into that uh, role because it's, it's clear that there's a market for you know, that, that kind of approach. And so um, I don't expect Facebook to go anywhere. I mean, Facebook has become far more popular in the last few weeks than it was before. Um, you know, the, the, the public sphere is just a different thing um, than it used to be. And, uh, you know, I, I've actually been spending a lot of time talking to senior people at Facebook the last few weeks, uh, trying to push them to uh, do more and better messaging um, and to, you know, tr try to frame this event uh, in a kind of serious, scientifically responsible way. And it's, you know, they've been pretty um, accommodating, actually. I've, I, I don't know if you've seen, like, the, on the Facebook homepage, there is in the Explore tab, this COVID-19 link. And if you hit it, it takes you to all of these local, you know, news sites for, you know, geolocated and so they tell you, like, you'll get messages from people who are offering help. You get messages from people who, who have needs. Um, you get links to local organizations that are doing work. I mean, I, I do think that there is some sense from the um, owners of these companies that they should do things differently. And that doesn't mean that we're still not gonna have echo ch chambers. Um, but I, you know, I, 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 I just don't wanna understand uh, estimate the extent to which this event is capable of generating changes and changes that are hard for us to foresee. Um, I mean, this, this is a massive experience we're going through. If I could just add on to that, I think what you said before, Eric, is um, chimes with what some of my political science colleagues are saying as well, which is, you know, we don't need everyone to change their minds and everyone's not going to change their minds, but enough people, we just need some people to, um, uh, not interpret what's happening through these hyper-partisan lenses to be that's able right. to make a difference. I think that's right, yeah. Fair enough. And I think, you know, just circling back around to your earlier um, comments, Eric, there's the hyper-partisan question, but there's also the sort of hyper-individualist versus social solidarity question. Yeah. And, the, and they're obviously related, right? These, these questions about the social nature of the phenomenon and about the political nature of the phenomenon are they're related, but they're not the same thing. That's right. Uh, and so the the um, the recognition that um, the sort of social rears its head uh, and bites back um, against the kind of hyper individualist style of engagement might might be part of that picture too. Yeah, very much. 
a nice point. Um, I know Eric has just a, a few more minutes. Um, any further questions, comments, thoughts um, you'd like to throw into the into the mix? Yeah, I'm curious. You mentioned talking to people at Facebook. Uh, now, as a public intellectual, you have more of a duty than the rest of us because your voice actually gets heard uh, by people who matter. Uh, I'm curious how you're navigating that. You've been in this role now for, for several years uh, where you have to comment on things. We're all still trying to figure out what's yeah. going on. And not only do you have to do that, but you also then are going to be on the record potentially forever about how you respond. How does that, how do you manage that? Well, I mean, uh, first of all, I usually don't say anything, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I try not to be the kind of person who just kind of, you know, bloviates um, on all matters. I mean, this happens to be a, an issue that um, falls pretty squarely at the center of a whole bunch of different things that I work on. Um, and so, uh, and, and, I, and I only got active in this debate because I, you know, the first thing I wrote was that New York Times op-ed about solidarity because I, because I was so uh, frustrated by the language of social distancing and also I felt like the things I learned from looking closely at the heat wave event in Chicago actually helped me understand many parts of this political dynamic, you know, which played out in similar ways um, in Chicago. And so, uh, you know, I guess I just want to say first, I think, I don't know how much of a public intellectual I am, but I, I, I do like to engage in public debates and um, I think there's a, a more responsible and less responsible way to do it. So like I, I, I found out the other day in my email that Verso has just published a book by Zizek about uh, the COVID-19 uh, crisis. And, right. you know, I, I, that, that, that was remarkable. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Um, and um, you know, so I, I do want to engage in things where I feel like I have something you know, serious to offer. Um, and I guess that to your question about, you know, the, the pace of these engagements and doing it in real time versus kind of doing the kind of more conventional scholarly approach of, you know, spending a few years before, uh, issuing, a, any kind of analysis and doing it carefully, but that is, you know, I think that is a kind of hazard of, of the kind of engagement that I, I do. And, um, it probably means that I'm out there wrong and, and wrong. Uh, more often than a lot of my colleagues. Um, but again, I mean, I, I, I try to be somebody responsible, somewhat responsible about it. So, so you know, I, I guess I'm, what I'm not saying here is that I think that uh, I'm certain that we can build solidarity out of this, that I know that we're going to have this transformation in a certain direction. I do feel fairly confident that there will be some significant social and political changes on the backside of this. I do not know the direction of them. Um, and uh, I, and I do, I guess I, I have this suspicion, although that, you know, I could be wrong, but I have a suspicion that part of the reason that the United States has done more poorly than any other developed country, um, what, you know, why the trajectory of this illness and the mortality is so steep here, um, is, it, you know, is because we have so little solidarity to fall back on at the moment, you know, it, the very high levels of distrust, um, including the distrust that government leaders have for um, scientific expertise and the distrust that we have for our, you know, our neighbors that sends us out buying guns and hoarding toilet paper. Um, uh, and we have uh, a high level of fragmentation, which makes it difficult to, you know, issue, um, you know, national orders. Uh, you know, so, um, 
Uh, you know, there was a moment when Trump said, you know, we're going to declare a state of emergency in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, and the tri-state areas, we're going to say, like, do you remember that moment? They're like, we're going to cordon it off. And no one had any idea what that meant. You know, well, what are you talking about? Um, and that's not really an issue in, in England. You know, if England wants to do something, England can do something at the national level. It's just much trickier here. So I just, I think there is something about uh, our, the lack of solidarity we have right now that combines with our, our hyper-fragmentation politically. Um, and then finally with um, the kind of unusually partisan moment that we have right now. Um, you know, it's, it's unusual to have a political leader who's so intent on, on being divisive. Um, you know, I think most political leaders, regardless of their party affiliation, would, would think of this as a, a moment to potentially unify a fractured society. And the fact that, you know, ours is not doing that, it's, it's pretty striking. But it's, it's, you know, those three things, I think, have made this much more dangerous than it would otherwise be. And, you know, I might be wrong about that. Maybe, you know, maybe that's not really what's going on. But I'm, at the moment, I'm willing to stand behind that. Eric, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. Um, thank you to the rest of the to you all for um, participating in this conversation. Um, and we'll be back next week on Thursday, the 16th at noon um, for the next IEH Zoom talk featuring um, Dean Terry Rhodes of our College of Arts and Sciences and Dean Elizabeth Engelhart um, discussing uh, academic leadership in times of crisis. Uh, but again, Eric, thank you so much. Uh, yeah. And everyone stay safe and healthy. Thanks to all of you. Good luck and uh, good health, everyone.